again, thanks, ladies, for doing such a beautiful job and leading us this morning. They did a great job for us. And I'll take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one underneath the chair you're sitting in or close to you, and you can turn there with us. And while you're turning, uh, Matthew chapter 5, we'll be, begin looking at verse 33. Mark Twain once said, The difference between the right word and the almost right word is a difference between lightning and a lightning bug. So perhaps the same thing could be said about uh, in relation to the difference between telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth or telling a white lie. So this morning, as you stand with me right now to read God's Word with me and honor His Word as we read it together, we're going to see here in God's Word this morning what the Bible says about honesty, about being a person of your Word, about telling the truth and nothing but the truth. So look with me in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is His footstool, or or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great King. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank you for your word again this morning. We know that there's many people in the world that have little, if any, access at all to this Bible. Some don't even know it exists. And most of us have multiple copies of it. Some of us carry it around on our phones. And Lord, often we, despite the access we have to it, we don't spend a lot of time in it. We spend a lot more time looking at our emails and our Facebook accounts than we do at the Word of God sometimes. Father, You've been so gracious to us. Remind us of that this morning. God, as we look at your word, I pray that our hearts might be stirred. We might see this God of truth, the God who is truth, and that we might reflect his character in the world as his redeemed people. Do this for your glory and your name's sake, we ask, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. So, Telling the truth, being honest, being a person of our word. Well, that doesn't exactly describe the day in which we're living, probably not any day in which any man has lived, but certainly in our day, in the accusations against our president, and some of them probably rightly so, about whether or not he's told the truth. Past presidents who've one president wanted to know what the meaning of the word is, is. And we have a new vocabulary in our language, at least it's new to me. And as a Tennessean, I guess I don't have a great big, huge vocabulary, but the word collusion, that seems to be a word that I've heard an awful lot about in the past few years since the last presidential election. I don't know if I'd ever heard that word before, collusion or not. Collusion means a secret or illegal cooperation or conspiracy, especially in order to cheat or deceive other people. 
So we've heard a lot about this collusion. So it's all about saying something or doing something to deceive somebody else. So telling the truth or being honest or being a person of a word certainly doesn't characterize the world. But I want to tell you this morning, this is the most serious topic, no matter what age you are. Because no matter what the world is like in relation to telling the truth, the rampant climate of dishonesty in our culture should never be true of the church. Amen? It shouldn't be true of God's people. And that's what Jesus was dealing with in His day. He was dealing with people, Jewish leaders in particular here on the Sermon on the Mount, he would be having in mind foremost, people who were talking about taking oaths and vows and so forth, but people who were being deceptive with their words. They'd found loopholes to make promises, in what they, but then they could back out of it later. That's the kind of people Jesus was dealing with in his day. So the world hadn't changed just a whole lot, has it? about being people of our word, about telling the truth and how the world's kind of anti-against that and, and not really characterized by that. Now, let's understand some things here. Some things need clarity. Scripture permitted oaths in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Permitted oaths, vows, Swearing, not We're not talking about when we say swearing, cursing here, saying cuss words. But swearing to God that you would tell the truth. Scripture talks about it in the Old Testament, permits it in the Old Testament, and it permits it in the New Testament. We see places where that's done. The Israelites, for example, could swear, but only by the name of the Lord. <laughs> and uh, if you really want a little homework assignment, go and look up uh, in a concordance, all the references to vows and swearing and, and oaths, they're all used synonymously in the Old Testament and New Testament. I did that this week. Man, that wore me out. The Bible's got a tons of references and a lot to say about oaths and swearing and taking vows. And so here's some of the conclusions that I came up with and verified by others that studied this as well. But Israelites could swear, but only by the name of the Lord. They could do it. In fact, they were encouraged to swear by the name of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13 is just an example. It's the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. His concern was, if you're, gonna, if you're in a situation, a circumstance where it's necessary, that's key, necessary, to swear or promise or take an oath, don't do it by anybody else's name but mine. Because I'm the only true God. Don't do it by Baal, the false god Baal, or anybody else. If you're going to call someone to witness, call me to witness that you're telling the truth. So they were actually encouraged sometimes to take vows and make those kind of promises. There were vow offerings in the Old Testament where they would make a vow and they'd bring an offering in relation to that. There was even regulations to help someone who had made a rash vow to get out of that vow and bring an offering. There were Nazarite vows. Remember the Nazarenes? They'd make a Nazarite vow. Remember Hannah who made a vow? In 1 Samuel, that she would, the Lord would give her a son, she would take him later, and she took him to all people. Eli, who couldn't raise two sons himself, but she fulfilled her vow. Vows sometimes in the Old Testament and New Testament were required of individuals. People were placed under vows. I may mention it again later, but Jesus himself, when he was on trial, the high priest adjured him that he would tell the truth. He put Jesus under an oath, and Jesus responded to that oath, that vow. 
Scripture forbids the abuse of oaths. So if you look at verse 33, you look at your Bible in verse 33, you notice it says this, Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform the Lord what you've sworn. So Scripture forbade the abuse of oaths. That's clear. And Jesus didn't have one particular verse in mind, but, but a whole bunch of different verses in mind. Leviticus 19, 12 is an example. It says this, You shall not swear by my name falsely. It doesn't say you shall not swear by my name, but shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Numbers 32, 30, verse 2 is another example, but there's several. Scripture forbade the abuse of oaths. And so we see that in verse 33. You see that in your Bible? Don't abuse oath-taking by saying you're going to do something and not doing it. Be a person of your word. Then notice what it says in verse 34. Look at your Bible. But I say to you, here we go, do not take an oath at all. And then he goes on to say either by this way or that way. Do not take an oath at all. So here we have this, well, Scripture's permitting in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament we see examples. So what exactly is taking place here? And we're going to talk about that some this morning. But one thing you need to understand is this. Remember what Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 says? Jesus said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. Remember that? He said, I came to fulfill the law. So don't think that Jesus is correcting the Old Testament here. When the Old Testament permitted oath-taking, and even in the New Testament we see it as well, don't think Jesus is saying, well, the Old Testament had it wrong because Jesus is the Word Himself. He spoke those words. He is the Word. So He's not correcting His Word. And saying we had it wrong all along. There's something else going on here. In fact, we're reminded of this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. You hear that? The law, so in relation to oaths, the law is good if one uses it how, church? Lawfully. The way it was intended. So what Jesus is doing here is he's in relation to oath taking, he's saying, here's the direction and the intention and how oaths are supposed to be used. And they were being abused widely in his day as they are in our day. Here's the main point of the message before we really dive into it much deeper. Ready? Keep your word and mean your word. Keep your word. We see that in verse 33. And I think the rest of the verses help us understand that we're supposed to mean our word. We're not supposed to be deceptive, as we'll see in a few moments, with our word. Keep your word and mean your word. Say what you mean, mean what you say. Now, there's an old saying, you know, people used to say when these kids, cross my heart and hope to die and stick a needle in my eye. Isn't that crazy? I started laughing when I thought about this. Stick a needle in my eye. Who in the world would, is going to stick a needle in their eye? Do you really mean that? See, see one hand. Here's, here's the first point of the sermon this morning. You would never stick a needle in your eye. That's point number one of the sermon this morning. You would never stick a needle in your eye. So don't say that you would. Now, we're getting into something more than that, right? Now, sometimes, uh, growing up, kids especially, say, yeah, I promise. I promise I'll do that. And put their fingers behind your back. You did that when you was a kid. Maybe you do it now. 
Or say, I promise, I promise. Got my legs crossed, right? Or, I promise. My, my fingers ain't crossed, my hands crossed. Well, you said you promised. My mind was crossed. I had my fingers crossed in my mind. And so by crossing fingers or crossing legs or doing it, uh, whatever in your mind, you found a way, a loophole to get out of your promise, get out of what you're doing. You told your friend or this person you said you would do. Now, that's exactly the kind of thing, as silly as that may seem, that Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders of the day were doing. They were finding a loophole, a way to say they would do something and then back out of it later on because they didn't really say they swore to God. They said they swore by the temple or by the great city of Jerusalem or by the throne. They didn't say they swore by God. So God's throne, you see all these things here in this verse? But I say to you, do not take an oath in all either by heaven for it's the throne of God. So instead of saying... I swear to God, they knew they, they had to do what they said they are going to do if they said they swore to God that they would do it. So they'd say, we, we swear to, to heaven. Or, or we swear, uh, look, look at what the rest of it says, for we swear by the earth or by Jerusalem. So they would, they'd say, we didn't swear to God, we swore by Jerusalem. And Jesus' whole point is God's behind everything. God reigns over all. There's nothing you can swear by that, that, that God's not sovereign over all things. You swear by heaven, that's his, that's his throne. You swear by earth, that's His footstool. You swear by the great city of Jerusalem, well, guess whose city it is? It's God's. There is no loopholes. There is no crossing your fingers and putting your hands behind your back. There is no backing out of doing what you said you were going to do. No matter what kind of phraseology you put into it. Be a person of your word and do what you said you were going to do. Matthew chapter 23 is the parallel passage that we need to flip over and look at. So turn your Bible. Now get those Bible pages turning to their screens and scratching on your phone and squeaking and get over to Matthew chapter 23. And notice what it says in verse 16. Matthew chapter 23 verse 16. Matthew chapter 23, verse 16. And hear the word of the Lord. As Jesus directly addresses scribes and Pharisees here. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. Right? You see that? Well, if you swear by the temple, well, that don't really mean you have to do what you said you was going to do. That's what Jesus is explaining to them. Woe to you if, you're, if, you, if you think you can just get out of your promises that way. Woe to you who say you swear by the gold of the temple. He is bound by his oath. If he says it by the gold of the temple. You blind fools, for which is greater the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? Verse 18. And you say if anyone swears by the altar, that's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You see, verse 19, you blind men for which is greater the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Verse 21, and whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And verse 22, and whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it because God 
reigns over everything. So don't think you can wiggle yourself out of promises just because you phrased your promise a certain way or you said things a certain way or you crossed your fingers, you know, put it in kids' language perhaps today. Well, let's, let's talk about this for just a minute. Should we say the Pledge of Allegiance? Isn't that a, a pledge? Is a, we're saying we're going to do something. I pledge allegiance to the flag. I, I, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, give my honor, you know, my, my, my loyalty to this flag, to, the, to what it represents to our nation. Should we be doing that? Is Jesus saying, if we're going to, are we going to absolutize Jesus' words here? If we are, we must be consistent. Right? I mean, and the Quakers have done this with this passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 5. The Anabaptists, which are forerunners of us, have done this as well, where they would not take, they would not say Pledge of Allegiance, they would not take oaths in the military, they wouldn't do anything like that. So, is that how, is that what we're supposed to do? Just absolutize this? Is this, is this where Jesus was headed with this? I don't think so. Again, I mentioned in the, in the Old Testament had some references where, where people took oaths. In the New Testament as well, Jesus was adjured by the high priest to under oath, and Jesus responded to that oath and went ahead and answered the question then. Paul himself in Galatians uh, took an oath uh, one time. Basically what he says in Galatians chapter 1, uh, verse 20, uh, he's saying, God is my witness before God. He's saying, I'm not lying before God. God is my witness. You heard people say that before. Well, well Paul said that in God's Word, in the New Testament, and he's not rebuked for it. It's it's the Word of God. It was necessary for him to do so because by doing so, he was calling attention to the weightiness of the gospel, the one gospel in which he was talking about in the book of Galatians. God takes oaths. Jesus is God, obviously. We talked about that. But in Hebrews chapter 6, we see God being referenced to making a promise to Abraham by oath. Swearing. He couldn't swear by no one greater, so he swears by himself that he will keep his promise to Abraham. So, to absolutize this is to forget about what the rest of the Scripture says about oaths and promises when it's necessary. So here's the really a point of application to think about in relation to this. Don't make oath-taking or swearing to God a part of everyday talk. Now, I told my children last night when we were looking at this passage of Scripture in preparation for this morning, I told my kids, don't you ever say, I swear to God. Don't you ever let me hear you saying that. Because you don't have any need to. That's the whole point. That's the whole point here. You, I told my kids, you just don't have any need to say that unless you're in court right? Putting your hand on the Bible or something like that. Then it's necessary. You understand? There are some situations in a, in a wedding. By the way, it's not just a traditional words to say till death do we part. It's an oath. In court, in the military, get sworn in, right, Brother George? You take an oath. But you're going you're gonna to do what you say. So if you go in the military, you say you're going to do it. Don't you try to back out of that commitment. So there's, there's places necessary, but I'm telling my kids, because they were asking, what about this, what about that? I said, you just, especially your age right now, you have no need to say, I swear to God. Or God is my witness. You're not, you're not in a situation like that. 
So just as Jesus says later, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just say yes or no. Be that kind of person. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Don't make oath-taking or swearing a part of everyday talk. Don't be like the person you, you run into out on the, on the street and says, Man, can I borrow ten bucks? I swear to God, I'll pay you back. What's that say about that person? That they feel like they have to add the words, I swear to God. Can't they just say, I'll pay you back? It says that they're not really trusting their own word when you say that. So don't do that. To do so is to really take that very lightly, to take God's name very lightly. Because when a person swears to God or they promise to God or, or sometimes they'll say, I swear on my mother's grave or whatever it is, those foolish things, you, you don't really mean what you say. You, you never stick a needle in your eye. You, you, you can't call God to account as your... As your, as your you, you are calling God to account as your witness in, in those things. But if you don't really mean it, it's like saying you'd stick a needle. You don't really mean what you're saying. And we're supposed to, again, main point of the sermon, keep your word and mean your word. Mean what you say. Be a person of your word. It's a quality that's lacking in our culture, in our world, and it should not be true of the church. Pinky promises and let's shake on it. I know that's... We, we do those sort of things, but it's really, it really, that's really not even necessary itself, really. Just say yes or no. Yeah, I'll be there. I'll show up. You can, you can count on me. So, one of the things in the message this morning is don't be deceptive with your words. That's the first sub-point under number one. I skipped there. Don't be deceptive with your words. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing in Matthew chapter 23 that we just read. They were being deceptive. They were saying, yeah, I'll do it because I swear by the altar. But I didn't say by the gift that's on the altar. Guess what? I'm not obligated to it. That's being deceptive with your words. Don't be deceptive with your words. Secondly, don't be careless with your words. This is what we're reminded of in the Bible this morning. Don't be careless with your words. How would we do that? We might be careless with our words by irreverently using God's name. Irreverently using God's name. Now, certainly, God's name is used as a cuss word. And we ought never do that. You ought never be going around using God's name any way at all. Saying, oh God, or I don't like this OMG stuff either. I know that's kind of in... A lot of people don't mean nothing by it. Just leave that out of your tweets and your Facebook messages. Because maybe I'm the one with a weak conscience, but it does offend me. <laughs> just, just leave that stuff out. Oh God, or, or, or pairing God's word with, with uh, damn or, or something like that. Just, just don't do it. It's irreverent. But, but what we're talking about here is not cursing. We're talking about promises or making vows. And, and, and when you do that, you're irreverently using God's name when you bring Him into the equation. Jesus is teaching again that every oath involves God, according to John Stott. It's an appeal for God to be judge over this situation. God is looking down, and if I'm not telling the truth, may God judge me. That's what you're doing when you swear to God or promise to God or whatever it is. I promise on my mother's grave. It's a pretty weighty thing to do. 
So don't be careless with your words by reverently using God's name. Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 2 says, Though they say, as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. A lot of times in the Old Testament, there's many times I looked up this week where people would say, As the Lord lives, I'm telling the truth. Well, God didn't say that it was wrong to do that. In, in a, in a, not as everyday talk, everyday conversation, but in certain situations and weighty situations to swear to say as the Lord lives, they were permitted to do that. But they better do it, is what Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 2 says. You better do it. So don't, don't be careless and utter such a phrase. And it's not necessary to do so. I hope you all getting it. hope I'm being so redundant you're like, you're sitting there thinking, Preacher, just move on. We got it. I hope that's what you're thinking to an extent. Or you could just say, Amen, Preacher. Keep on preaching. That's all right. I'll accept that. Remember the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve... I preach that sermon on nakedness. Adam and Eve, they no longer could see one another the same way anymore because they couldn't trust one another anymore. Remember the fall. We're all products of the fall. We, we can't really trust each other, even ourselves. We're all prone to lie. To lie to one another. To not trust one another. So sometimes oaths are necessary because of our proneness not to trust one another and our proneness to lie. And so God permits oaths in certain situations, but not very often should there be an occasion where we have to say other than yes or no. So I mentioned in court and weddings and military, there's other situations as well. Just be careful. Don't be careless with your words by reverently using God's name. And secondly, don't be careful, careless with your words by impulsively presuming upon God's will. By impulsively, you know what it means to be impulsive? Just don't think about it, you just do it. It's careless, right? I'm at Walmart, Friday night, Walmart, ain't nothing to do around here. Let's go to Princeton and go to Walmart. Oh, there's a new fishing rod. Man, I'm going to do it. Put it on credit card. Don't even think about it. Impulsive buying. If it weren't for my wife, we'd be broke because I'm an impulsive buyer. Well, sometimes we can be impulsive with our words. Impulsively presuming upon God's will. And we rashly, without thinking, say things or enter into things which require commitments of us. And we've presumed that it's okay, that God's okay with that. And we're going to be able to fulfill what we said we're going to do. Because we didn't take time to pray about it, think about it, or anything at all. You know... A few years ago, it was before we moved here, we were in Kansas City. My, my parents helped us out, and we decided we were going to take the kids to Disney. They'd been asking to go, and they were real little. Titus was still a baby. And, uh, but we decided we'd go with my parents down there, my brother and his family, and drive. But we didn't tell the kids we were going, because anything can happen. You know how it goes, parents? We didn't tell them we were going until the, I think, the day before. You know, we've been planning it for weeks. And then we told the kids, hey, y'all want to go to Disney tomorrow? <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah. Are you serious? Like, yeah, it looks like we're going to be able to go because something could happen and plans change. And sometimes with, with kids, not just my kids, but your kids too, you know how it goes, especially when they're little. 
You tell them, hey, tomorrow we're going to take you guys fishing. And it rains. Or somebody's in the hospital. Dad's got to go to the hospital visit somebody. And what, what comes out of their mouth sometimes? You lied. It shouldn't come out of their mouth. You promised. I didn't promise you. So two things need to happen when that kind of irreverence comes out of the mouth of our kids. One, they need to be disciplined. And they need to be taught to honor their father and mother and not pronounce judgment upon their mom and dad because plans have changed. Secondly, it needs to be a life lesson for them, right? Sometimes plans change. That's what we have to tell our kids. They get upset because they're looking forward to something and something gets canceled or delayed. Guys, we couldn't help it. We didn't lie. Plans just change sometimes. You're going to have to learn that's part of life. James chapter 4 verse 13 says, Come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. So that's what I'm getting at here. By, we can carelessly promise things with our words by impulsively presuming upon God's will. And James says, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. That don't mean we don't make plans. You all know that. We've got to make plans. Lord willing, we're going to leave Thursday morning to go to Bosnia at six, around 6.30 a.m. Plans could change. Flights could cancel. We all know we've got to make plans as part of life. But we shouldn't make we shouldn't say we're going to do something impulsively without realizing we're not sovereign over everything. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. Yeah, charge that to my account. And we don't know if we're going to have money in our account because we're putting everything on credit. We're just buying impulsively, putting ourselves in debt. We don't know if we're going to be able to pay our bills. One of the things about this passage of Scripture reminds us if we're making an obligation to do something, you better be able to know that you're going to be able to pay it. And you better pay your bills and pay your debts. Don't make rash vows. Remember the story of Jephthah in the Old Testament? Jephthah was a guy who promised, Lord, let me have victory. And the first thing comes out of my house, I'll sacrifice to you. It's in the book of Judges. Read it. And the first thing came out of his house when he got home from victory was his daughter, his little girl. And you know, a lot of people don't understand this, but in Leviticus, the Bible makes a concession for those that make rash vows. Jephthah did not have to sacrifice his daughter. But that's how far the people were gone. They did what was right in their own eyes. And so in order to save face, and because he didn't understand what the law said, he went ahead and sacrificed his daughter, killed her, murdered her. Because he made a rash vow. David did the same thing. Or excuse me, it was uh, Saul. We're not surprised by King Saul made a rash vow, said anybody that eats, they were fighting in a battle, anybody that eats right now, nobody's supposed to eat anything until, the, until we've won the victory. And his men were so wore out and tired that they couldn't hardly, they couldn't finish, finish the enemy off. And his own son reached over and ate something. Didn't know his dad had made this rash promise, this impulsive vow. Saul found out about it and said, okay, he's going to die. But Saul had lost so much credibility in the eyes of his own people, his people rose up and prevented him from killing his son, Jonathan. But he had made a rash vow. So don't make rash vows. Don't enter contracts. You know, when the minister stands at usually to officiate a wedding, he usually says, 
something to the effect, don't enter into this marriage lightly or unadvisedly, something to that effect, right? Don't enter into marriage. Don't, don't say, hey, let's just go get married tomorrow. Just met online. Let's go get married tomorrow. Let's go to Vegas. Get married. Run down to the courthouse. Don't join a church rashly. When you become a member of a church, what we're trying to raise is a bar of expectation of church membership in our church. Uh, you are entering a covenant with those members of that church that you're promising to live together as a church family according to the, what the Bible says. One, one other point of application before I move on quickly and, and wrap up the message is this. Uh, don't trap people. When Jesus says here in verse, what was it, uh, verse uh, 37, let, you, let what you say simply be yes or no. Don't let people trap you with that. Okay? Just want to remind you real quick of something. Uh, we were in a situation in Kansas City where we had a homeless people coming to our church being bussed in. Well, sometimes we had to start off with five or six and ended up being 30 in a church smaller than this. So can you imagine 50, when you think of percentage-wise, 50 homeless men being in our church this morning, walking around freely? It might be a little intimidating. And that's kind of what it had gotten to at that church. And, and a lot of people just said, we don't want them here. And it was ungodly. But they just so so scared, they just said, we don't want them here at all. And it came to a point in a church business meeting uh, where we were, that we were in, and one person spoke up, and that we were asked to to sign a contract as a church with this uh, rescue mission uh, about doing some things that would hopefully bring about a way to continue the ministry. And one person spoke up and said, "Now, doesn't the Bible say let your yes be yes and your no be no? And we're not, so we shouldn't be having to sign anything." And when he said that, all I heard in the back of the church was, Amen, that's right. It's like, all right, we found something to get us out of this. We're supposed to let our yes be yes. We can't sign anything. And yet I'm sitting there thinking, I've lost them now. Church voted it down, by the way. They said, no, disobeyed God. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, we sign contracts all the time. Keep the lights on at the church, insurance. I mean, we're all the time signing stuff as a church. It was just ridiculous. And they, they found a way to trap us, trap that with their words. Don't let somebody, here's the, here's the thing, don't let somebody trap you into saying yes or no. People try to trap me with my words before, and, I, and what you need to say is, well, let me ask you a question before I answer that. What do you mean by that? When you say, are you this, or you say, is this what you believe, or, you, or whatever the, the, the issue is, what do you mean by that? Because before I can say yes or no, I need to know what the implications of my yes or no are going to be. Right? So be careful. And don't try to do that to other people and don't allow that to be happen to yourself. So be careful. All right, second point, need to move on. Liar, liar, pants on fire. You heard that before. Well, the second point of the message this morning is this. Liar, liar, your soul will be on fire. If you are a liar, you will go to hell. And that's what Scripture teaches. Remember Ananias and Sapphira, how, God's, how serious God was when they took their rash oaths. He said, you've not lied to men, but you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. And both of them ended up dead. If God's judgment was so vast in the church today, as many preachers have noticed, 
when they've preached on this, the church would probably just be empty. God takes what we say very seriously. In James chapter 5, verse 12, says this, But above all, my brothers, do not swear by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. James, I believe, remembered closely what the Lord Jesus had said on the Sermon on the Mount about this, and he repeated it in the book of James. Otherwise, you'd be under condemnation. Notice what Jesus says. Look at your Bible in Matthew chapter 5, verse 37. Again, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8 says this. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I mean, he's just lumped all in there with all the other things you say. I'd never do that. I'd never be like that. Some of us would say that. Jesus said, if you're a liar, you're going to hell. Liar, liar, your soul will be on fire. So let me say this about this. Your word... Your word reflects the character of your father. Who is your father? Your word, who's your spiritual father? Your word reflects the character of your father. Why is God so serious about this? Why is Jesus so animate that we be careful with our words? That we people of the word, of our word, that's who he is. John chapter 8 verse 44 says this. Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own what? character. When he lies, he lies because that's just who he is. That's his character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So when we lie, who are we acting like? The devil. When we're not telling the truth, when we're being deceitful, when our yes is not really yes and our no is not really no, we're acting like the devil. And we're under condemnation. So let me ask you, what's the status of your soul? Liar, liar, your soul will be on fire. What's the status of your soul then? Who is your father? When I was in, I think, the first grade, I was had a little buddy of mine named Mike Hamby. He's a preacher now, Southern Baptist preacher too. And uh, so we grew up together. But he come over to spend day with me. I don't want to spend the night. I don't remember, but we were back in Tennessee where I grew up and mom and dad took us to McDonald's. And, uh, you know, when I was growing up, I, my family did not like pizza. Pizza was like this city thing. I'm serious. 
Never heard of it, never had it in her house. But at school, they'd started serving pizza, these square pieces of pizza. And a lot of the kids liked it. But I was like, man, I don't know what this stuff is. I'm serious. And so I didn't, didn't eat it. But I was out with my buddy and my mom. And I, I remember my mom, I remember this vividly, just first grade. I remember my mom said, what did y'all have at school today for lunch? Well, my mom was a school teacher, so she knew. She said, y'all eat your pizza at lunch today? My mom was a third grade teacher, so she knew it. And I said, I said, yeah, we had pizza. She said, yeah, I ate my pizza. And my buddy that was with me, Mike, said, no, you didn't. I was sitting right there beside you. You didn't eat your pizza. I ate your pizza. I think that's what he said. I ate your pizza. <laughs> and I was caught. I lied. I wanted my mom to pat me on the back or something or give me some more McDonald's french fries. I don't know what it was, my motivation. Have you ever told a lie? Like I did and have since? What's that make you? It makes you a liar. That's what we've been learning about and being reminded of in our study on Sunday nights and about evangelism. Second question, will you be innocent or guilty on the day of judgment? If you told a lie, are you a liar? Will you be innocent or guilty on the day of judgment? You should say guilty. My last question, does that concern you? You've admitted that you're a liar. You'll be guilty on the day of judgment. Does that concern you? Are you troubled by that? The last thing I want to put your attention to is Hebrews chapter 6. You can listen or I'd invite you to turn there with me. We saw that lying is characteristic of the devil, of Satan. And when we lie, we act like the devil. But truth is characteristic of the God who is truth. Amen? Of the God who is the way, the truth, and the life. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17 says this. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. You see, God took an oath. Verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things, this is why He did it, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. He, he just can't do it. Because why? Because His character is truth. He can't be other than God, right? He must do what He says. And what He's saying here is I'm making a covenant with my people. Get it? Oh, this is good. Look at what the rest of He says. Listen if you're not there. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we believers in Jesus, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That's a promise from the God who can't lie. Look at what he says in verse 19. We have this. Now this is, God says, I'm swearing by myself because I can't swear by any other greater. Now, he don't have to take an oath, but he wants us to have this kind of assurance if we're trusting in Jesus about what's going to happen to us when we die. He says this, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. An anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place. Who could go behind a veil in the temple? Listen, kids. Who could go back there? Just the high priest. But where's our hope? It's anchored behind the veil where Jesus went. 
Notice what he says. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Praise God that our God is incapable of lying. And he says, if our hope is anchored in Jesus Christ, it is an anchor of the soul that we can rest in, that we can have strong encouragement for. He gives strong warnings in Hebrews 6 intended to rattle us out and shake us out of our complacency. And he also gives strong encouragement at the same time to hold fast and keep trusting in Christ. This is the God. So the reason God says so much about telling the truth and keeping our word is because that's who He is. And we're liars. If you didn't admit that you're a liar, you're lying. Because you are. We're like Adam and Eve. But God in His grace has redeemed a people for Himself that who were not reflecting His image and were lying and God doesn't lie. He's redeemed us to Himself and renewing us as new creations as we testify in our baptism so that we now reflect the character of God again. And so, as believers who've been redeemed, whom God has recreated us and recreating us and sanctifying us, we become people of truth. People who once were liars, people who now should be known as people who tell the truth. So what I'm saying is this, to say you're a Christian and not tell the truth is a lie in itself. To say you're a follower of Jesus, redeemed by God, God's changing me and cleansing me. You should be one that endeavors to be a person of truth. If I ain't got my word, I ain't got nothing. If I can't be a person of integrity, that means everything. Be a person of the truth. Tell the truth. The glorious news this morning, folks, even though we're liars, is the God who never lies, promises that if you confess that you're a liar or an adulterated heart or whatever multitude of sins that are in your life, if you confess and you want with God's help to turn from that and trust in Jesus Christ, He promises to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He promises not only to forgive you and take away the unrighteousness, what's He promised to do? He promises to clothe you in righteousness. Right? He doesn't just promise to take the bad stuff out of your spiritual bank account so that it's wiped clean. He promises also to put all the righteousness of Christ into your account. So He looks at you and He says, to a former liar, He says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. That's how He looks at you. Isn't that the good news? Isn't that the gospel? Shouldn't that stir me to want to leave this place and be a person of my word? As a redeemed liar, to tell the truth of the gospel that never changes, that can save anybody. And He can save you. He can save people in Bosnia that we're going to talk to in the next couple of weeks. But He can cleanse your neighbor right here across your street. And you this morning, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Amen? So, what are you going to do? In a couple of weeks, when I return from Bosnia, 
On July 1st, we've got two, maybe three people to be baptized that Sunday. Looking forward to that. And I don't say this often because we don't plan our baptisms way in advance. But since that's how things worked out because of scheduling, I want to say this to you. If you have not followed the Lord in believers' baptism, I hope that you'll talk to me before Thursday so we can talk about you doing what the Bible says to do about being baptized. I hope you'll do that. If you've not been trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what that's, you need to talk to Him first. But come and talk to me about baptism. We'd love to. Let's pray together. Thank you for your word, oh God. Thank you for this good news. Thank you for taking the weight of our sin. It is so great. And sometimes we feel it so lightly and sometimes we feel it so greatly. But Lord, you see it all times. And you're willing to take it away completely. And you're willing to not just take it away, but to make us new. And make us your own children. Thank you for the gospel. Do your work in us, we pray. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together this morning. and As we stand together and sing, these ladies lead us. If God's speaking to you this morning about something, you want to come and pray or come and talk with me if you'd like to. I'll pray with you. You come if God's speaking to you. Come as He leads you this morning. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. 
At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel. 